You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. joining us. Um, I'm delighted to be able to introduce tonight Jeffrey Cowan, who is the president of the Annenberg Foundation Trust at Sunnylands and the Annenberg Family Chair in Communication Leadership at the University of Southern California. Jeffrey Cowan is the best-selling author of The People vs. Clarence Darrow, and for his role in dramatically increasing the number of presidential primaries in 1968, ABC Television News called him the man who did more to change democratic conventions than anyone since Andrew Jackson started them. Let the People Rule tells the story of the four-month campaign that changed American politics forever. In 1912, Theodore Roosevelt came out of retirement to challenge his close friend and hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft, for the Republican Party nomination. To overcome the power of the incumbent, Teddy Roosevelt seized on the idea of presidential primaries, telling bosses everywhere to let the people rule. If you can join me in welcoming Jeffrey Cowan. Thanks for that introduction, which is actually a very good summary of the talk that I'm about to give. It's, thank you for having me here, uh, and, it, and it's wonderful also to place it. Uh, it, it celebrates and thinks about the problems that people would want. We were, I was talking about that with my cousin who's here, whose husband is, uh, has that particular disability, and it's, it's wonderful that there's an institution that's, that's devoted to that, too. It's also kind of fun to be in Maryland and to be in Baltimore, because the story that I'm about to tell you has a Baltimore and Maryland connection, too, which I think makes it basically fun. In fact, the year 1912, which is when we talk about it, the, the convention that we'll be talking about took place in Chicago, the Republican convention, and also the Progressive Party convention. But the Democrats had their convention, which they nominated Woodrow Wilson right here in Baltimore. So Baltimore actually has a certain a continuing role in this in this particular story. Just to say a few words about why I wrote the book, and, and then I want to tell you the story of the book a bit, and then uh, suggest to you a context in which I think some questions that it raises are particularly interesting today. When, since 19, 1860, the President of the United States has been picked through a process which either which in which one of the two major political parties had a nominee. So he's either a Democrat or Republican. So the way in which you pick the Democratic nominee, the way in which you pick the Republican nominee, is hugely important. It really determines in this country who the president's going to be. And we've seen in France, which we may talk about a little later, a process in which neither party in France actually wanted really for the two finalists. But in this country, the president has always been picked through one of those two party processes. So to understand that process is hugely important. How do we pick a presidential nominee? It's it. Yet few people really know it. And I have a particular role in this, you suggested in a nice introduction which I'll come to in a minute, which is why I was so interested in this. But first of all, to tell you, there have been four stages in history in which, through which uh, presidents were nominated. The first was the beginning of the Republic until 1832. The parties nominated their candidates through something called King Caucus, which would be the caucus of the members of Congress who meet inside the nominee. So it's sort of the Republicans in Congress have decided this year, for the Democrats in Congress, who's going to be our nominee. The outcome would be somewhat different, I think, if the, if the nominees had been chosen that way. Then, in, uh, in 1832, and even probably many of you reading about Andrew Jackson, who's kind of in the mind of our current president, was not really happy with the system, and he decided to expand the process and create conventions. So the first time a major party had a convention was in 1832, and that was a, and at conventions you have people who were not just the members of Congress, they could be elected leaders, like governors or, or, um, uh, or mayors, they were also people who either were patronage distributors or patronage beneficiaries and others who were intensely involved and interested in the part, in the process. And that was the system until 1912. In 1912, we'll see what happens with this. 
uh, the process changes because of Theodore Roosevelt's interest in becoming president. Not only that, but that's what really gives it its emphasis. But in 1912, as we'll see, there were still only a fraction, maybe a third, a quarter of a third of the delegates, who were picked through primaries. So there were primaries that were created in which people could actually vote for delegates who were bound to or likely to vote for the president uh, who's, uh, whose name was on the ballot. Uh, but most of the delegates were still picked in the old-fashioned convention way. And so, at least when I was a kid, and this may speak to some of you, um, there were conventions in which surprises could happen, the decision had not been made by primaries. So you had a mixed system between 1912 and 1968. And actually, the people who were nominated, who, who were favored in primaries, sometimes didn't win. That's what happens, we'll see with the story I'm about to tell you, happened in 1952. S.S. Keefe won all the Democratic primaries, but Adlai Stevenson, who hadn't run a single primary, became the nominee of the party. But it became a subject of a great concern in 1968 when a lot of people were opposed to the war in Vietnam. There was a, a kind of revolution going on inside the Democratic Party. Both Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy, both senators, ran for the nomination against originally uh, uh, Linda Johnson, who then withdrew, and then against the succession favorites, on who sometimes just against each other. But the nominee that year, of course, Bobby Kennedy was shot after he won in California. But the nominee of that party for that year was Hubert Humphrey, who hadn't won a single party. And to many people, that just didn't seem right. That there had been all these popular votes, but they had no impact. That ultimately, uh, bosses could still basically rule the party insiders could. And so that's the year that I engaged in this activity, you nicely mentioned, and organized a commission which was designed to create a system in which all delegates to the convention were picked through a popular process. And the rule was adopted on the floor of the 1968 convention, which controlled the 1972 convention, was that all delegates had to be picked through a system that was open to full public participation in the final year of the election. And that rule, which was adopted by the Democrats, wound up also being adopted by the Republicans. Slightly different rule, but basically themselves requiring that everybody be through this kind of system. And so that's why Howard K. Smith said in the opening night of the Democratic Commission in 1992 that around the hall, a huge picture of people made the Democratic Party where it is, one of the missing that of young Jeffrey Cowan, that was a while ago, young Jeffrey Cowan, who did more to change Democratic conventions than anyone since Andrew Jackson started. My hero in 1968 was Theodore Roosevelt, because I was fascinated in what he had done in 1912, and actually, I read it. It's nice to think that historians can be read sometimes in terms of political action. There was a man named George Mowry, you yeah, probably know him, a famous historian who was at, at, uh, at UCLA, a part of his career. And he had written a book about Roosevelt's role in that primary. And I was fascinated in what really happened, what really happened in 1912. So when I had a chance, I decided to try to write a book where I could find out the full story maybe see what lessons there were for today. And digging into it, I did what historians do. I sort of consider myself not a real historian, but I'm not a trained historian. But something like an investigative historian. I try to really dig up things that nobody's ever found before. I found some amazing manuscript collections in one or two maybe we could talk about it, which nobody ever seen before, and found a very different story in 1912 of this whole process. I wanted the book to come out in time for it to be discussed during the 2016 election, because it was one of those times that only happens every few years, every every two or three cycles, where both parties were going to have primaries because there was no incumbent president. So I wanted the book to come out then. I was lucky enough that it did. It was published a year ago, January. So it came out in January of 2016. And it was in the Washington Post in January of 2016 by a well-known historian, H.W. Brand, Bill Brands, and his review of my book started with a sentence that kind of conflated my own personal role with the book that I wrote. This is a review of the book, but he starts by reviewing me. So he said, if Donald Trump wins 
the Republican nomination against the wishes of Republican Party leaders, he should send a note of thanks to Jeffrey Town. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Now I'm not sure it's quite so funny. But I still haven't gotten that note, nor did he say what Donald Trump should send me if he were to win the presidency, not just get the nomination. But it raises some interesting questions. If you love Trump and you feel that he wouldn't otherwise have been nominated, it shows that the process works, that somebody can be, be nominated and, and elected against the wishes of, of the establishment. If you don't like Trump, or maybe worse than don't like Trump, it raises questions about how good a legitimate process is. But for many people, this is a year in which we are not exactly celebrating direct democracy. We're asking questions about it. Brexit, direct democracy. Good thing, bad thing, maybe it raises some problems. The French election just had an election of Obama, raises questions. So a lot of people are now wondering just how great direct democracy is and how great the primaries are. I still kind of defend it, and I'm happy to talk about it in Q&A if you want. I still think primaries are a good thing. But you have to say that if they're a good thing, now they're not perfectly constructed. But if you believe in them because they produce a Barack Obama, how do you then decide you don't believe in them because they produce somebody you may not be as happy about? But here's some of the surprises. One was why Roosevelt ran. Uh, Roosevelt had been the president of the United States uh, from he was vice president, namely William McKinley. McKinley was assassinated uh, in, uh, uh, in, in 1901 shortly after being re-elected, and so Roosevelt became president and would have served almost complete two terms uh, by March, in those days it was March of, uh, of, uh, of 1909, when, he, when his uh, term would be, well, elected term would be completed. So it would have served almost eight years. He believed there was this tradition served by George Washington, you shouldn't serve more than two terms. And so he announced that he would not run for another elected term. And Having announced that, though he later regretted it, he decided that the Republican Party should nominate his candidate. And the person he picked as his candidate was William Howard Taft. The man he once called the most lovable man he knew, the man who was the Secretary of War, as we would now call it, Secretary of Defense, had been governor of the Philippines, which was a big job, sort of like being the president of the Philippines, and somebody who he considered a wonderful man. He also did. A, a court of appeals judge who's really going to be a Supreme Court justice. So, thanks to Roosevelt, uh, Taft becomes the president in 1909, elected in 1908, becomes president in 1909, and Roosevelt goes off to, uh, to Africa on a safari, the kind of thing he loved to do, and it's something he would do in his life. But well, we just saw our own becoming president leave on a trip for a month. Roosevelt would do that as Obama, but Roosevelt would go off for periods of time and, and contemplate, read, and, and have an adventure. While he was gone, he expected Taft to be his, uh, to carry out his policies. A lot of people got upset about his policies, particularly in the environmental um, But, and so I had always thought that if the reason he wanted to ultimately challenge William Howard Taft was the tap was a disappointment to him in terms of issues. I came to a very different conclusion doing my research. Although I think that was there, I think what had happened to Roosevelt was something else. And to do this, you have to sort of picture Theodore Roosevelt. And I think he's so much a part of our popular imagination that we can all kind of imagine as the kid who overcomes asthma, who becomes fascinated with insects and with nature, who, who uh, goes out to, to North Dakota and becomes a cowboy and has adventures in that North Dakota where he kind of captures the bad guys. And of course, he popularizes everything he did, not with tweets, but with these wonderful articles that appear, and they inspire people. And, and so he becomes kind of a hero in North Dakota. And then uh, he becomes the assistant secretary of the Navy and has written an important book about it, champions a large fleet. And then when the uh, Spanish-American War comes along, organized people fighting that war. Um, his own father had not, who he adored, had not fought in the Civil War. 
his two uncles had that kind of thing, which were separately, but they had served, they had fought for the Confederacy. But he decides that he believes in war and wants to become a warrior, so he organizes this group of people and he calls Ruffle Hiders. And he becomes a war girl in the Spanish American War. And then he comes back and he, you know, he's a police commissioner of New York, by the way, and there are even novels which describe him as going out and getting the bad guys on the streets of New York. A little bit exaggerated, but not entirely untrue. I was just talking with Chris here about the, the fact that on Blue Buds, a television series starring uh, Tom Selleck, every week you can see Tom Selleck in the police commissioner's office, and there's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt there as the police commissioner. And then he becomes the governor of New York, and he becomes president of the United States. And in each of these things, he's known as total vitality. Uh, for his total vitality, for all the true, he had his president did so many wonderful things. The Food and Drug Administration is responsible Many, many true things. We picture him as a trust buster in a moment. I'm going to call that into question. But, but to some extent, he was. And he builds the Panama Canal. Maybe most importantly, he and Gifford Pinchot there, you can picture them on floors with maps of the United States spread out using the, the Monuments Act, which, by the way, is just today by executive order been challenged by our incumbent president. But he, anyway, and he and, uh, and, and uh, Gifford Pinchot would be on the floor figuring, where can we create wilderness, wilderness areas? And so much of our majestic wilderness was saved and preserved by Peter Roosevelt. Um, but when he, uh, and I thought that it was the disappointment with, with, uh, uh, with Taft that led him to run. Then something else had happened. When he goes back after the trip to Africa, he goes back to Oyster Bay, probably some of you have visited his place on Island, uh, and he feels out of the action. And he also feels old and he feels rheumatic and he feels like he can't take long walks again. This man, the picture is being so violent. Uh, and the person who nails this situation the best is William Howard Taft, who still loves him at this point. Who's the president who says, it breaks my heart. They had a common uh, aide named Archie Butt, who wrote wonderful letters that are still preserved. And he writes Archie Butt. Uh, Taft tells Archie Butt, it breaks my heart to think Roosevelt up there in Oyster Bay and Long Island where it could be so cold in the winter, feeling so alone. Wishing that he could be back in the action. If only he could act. That's what's denied to today. If only could act, act. Well, my conviction is that the reason that Roosevelt decided to run as much as anything else was that he wanted to be back in the action. The problem for Taft was there was only one thing worth doing, only one act worth taking, and that was to challenge the President of the United States. So that came as a bit of a surprise to me, but that motivation would come through all too. He's doing it for that personal reason in part. And then, uh, second thing is, the reason I wrote the book was, what the, I believe from George Maui books and everything else I read, that he believed in presidential primaries. And so I wanted to understand his motivation and what he'd done that year. And he does become, as you see, the, the inspiration of presidential primaries in some ways. But originally, he did not believe in primaries. In fact, primaries are being created by a whole group of men who are progressives. They, uh, led by men named Jonathan Bourne from, uh, from Oregon. Uh, one name that's still well known today, Robert La Follette, a kind of fire-breathing uh, progressive activist from, uh, from Wisconsin, a little like a Bernie Sanders in this era. And he believes in, in primaries passionately. Born does, and a group is called created called the National Republican League, uh, Progressive Republican League, created in Mavala's home in Washington. And Roosevelt refuses to join them. And as one of their key goals, they want to have presidential, they want to have presidential primaries. He's, he refuses to join that. So finally, Mavala announces he's going to run for president because Roosevelt not only doesn't believe in primaries, he's not going to run or challenge. At this point. And so uh, six primaries were actually created by the fall. By October, Roosevelt has decided that he really does want to run by October of 1911. But he thinks he's going to get the nomination the old fashioned way. After all, his lifetime, it had always been decided in these uh, conventions, which were decided by people who were party bosses. 
and the party bosses love TR. And by the way, he didn't care much for Taft. And Taft had been politically kind of familiar as far as what was happening uh, in, in local elections. So he thought he could get the party bosses reformed. But somehow, the, the party bosses, even though they loved TR, they still owed their loyalty to, they were financially indebted to, as a practical matter, they had to follow the leadership of the president. And Taft and his colleague were very tough. And Roosevelt realized reluctantly that he couldn't win that way. But if the Republican National Committee met in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in December, and the La Follette and the Jonathan Bourne forces were trying to put a resolution uh, into the Republican Committee rules, a little like the one I was involved with years later, which would have required that there be primaries. Roosevelt's operatives, with his uh, asking him to do it, were working in the halls, preventing that from happening. He was against there being primaries. But by February, he decided the primary was the only way he could possibly win. So he decides he's going to enter the race, and when he announces that he's going to run, which he does in February, it's amazing he's so late, February of, of the year of the election, he, he makes his campaign thing, let the people rule. There should be primaries everywhere. Of course, that becomes uh, the theme that's on the buttons, which I'm getting to all, which are excellent duplicates of the original buttons, but you look like somebody that era. Wearing a button saying, let the people rule. That becomes his whole campaign. He was like that. He can't it. He had a dialogue with an interesting man uh, who was a California reformer named Charles Dwight Willard. And in that, Willard said, this sort of tells you where Roosevelt was before he seized on this as, a, uh, as the as only political force to, to victory. <laughs> Willard said, speaking for the, for the California reformers and Hiram Johnson and this is a very progressive state at that point. Uh, we, we believe that uh, primaries and the ability of people to choose their own leaders are godlike as a maker of men. And Roosevelt totally disagreed. And he disagreed partly pointing places where he thought that primaries had brought about bad results. And he wasn't for them. And it's an interesting thing today to wonder where we'd be in today's debate. But anyway, so he championed them. And there were six primaries when he got out of the race. He personally and his team is responsible for having another seven primaries. So ultimately, there are 13 primaries. Um, so I was surprised by that. Then the campaign itself uh, was, to me, quite an, a revelation in much of the book is about it. Uh, the first primary held anywhere in the United States in 1912 was held in North Dakota. Well, on one level, you think, oh, well, T.R. in North Dakota. Yeah, well, here he was. He was, he was the hero of North Dakota, if you're reading uh, all these short stories that he wrote about his own exploits there. This is a place he had lived for a while. Of course, he's going to win in North Dakota. It's half to win. But there was another person in the race, and that was Robert LaFalla. And Robert LaFalla was from close to a neighboring state, had the attitude of the people in North Dakota, and so... In the first primary ever, Robert LaFalla beats T.R. Uh, the second primary, a week later, this was on November 19th, the second primary is on November 26th, and it's in New York State. Well, T.R. had been governor of New York, and he'd been president of the United States, and it's his home state. Surely he's going to win in New York State. But in fact, in a fascinating uh, set of events, he doesn't win in He's kind of humiliated in New State. And the press makes it sound like TR has been humiliated in the first two primaries ever, including in his own home state. And the third state, primary, April 2nd, was Wisconsin. Well, that's LaFollette's own state. So LaFollette wins. He wins three. Roosevelt had lost three primaries in a row. Then on April 9th, a primary takes place which he and his allies have created. It's in, it's in Illinois. It's a primary that had been brought about in large part through the Chicago Tribune newspaper, which had fought for it very strenuously, paid for his campaign in Illinois, kind of concocted what they wouldn't necessarily call fake news, but let's say news that was helpful to one side, deliberately so. And, uh, and so 
uh, Tierra winds up amazingly winning in the state of Illinois and winning overwhelmingly. And when he wins that state, it's the first time in history that momentum is So he wins in this incredible race in Illinois. And next week he wins in Pennsylvania. And all of a sudden, looks like he's He has one slight hiccup along the way, which takes place in Massachusetts, one of the places that he's created a primary, as he had in Illinois. He wins in Massachusetts. Roosevelt wins in Massachusetts and loses at the same time. So he, he kind of loses in Massachusetts, but he can claim a moral victory. The state after Massachusetts, which he cannot afford to lose, Roosevelt, is Maryland. Maryland has a primary that is created by Roosevelt and Massachusetts. And it's a very tight primary. He's going to win in Baltimore. TR is, in the same way that he's won in a lot of these progressive areas that he had fought in. But you have the Eastern Shore, you have a lot of much, much more conservative parts of the state. The population that becomes most interesting and most disputed is the African-American population. <laughs> Where there was a large African-American population, half, Maryland, though it's a border state, had not adopted Jim Crow laws, which disenfranchised blacks throughout the South. They tried to. Taft had made it almost impossible for them. So Taft was kind of a hero to some of the people who cared about the black vote in Maryland. On the other hand, a lot of African Americans loved TR, others didn't. There was the whole Brownsville raid thing, there was a lot of things. Some of it seemed great. Booker G. Washington in the White House, that was a great moment. They weren't so great TR. But still, when the election returns come in from Maryland, it is an absolute tie. They vote by, you know, by county And it's an absolute tie. There's one small county with only three delegates in it from Maryland called, I don't know, Howard County? Is it some, you know, Howard County? So Howard County comes in very late. The TR people have decided they're going to lose. They didn't even think about really fighting in Howard County. They thought the farmers there were going to be for them. But there were three African-American men who early in the campaign had come to the TR forces and said, let us put ourselves on the ballot and run a campaign. Roosevelt people made no attention to what was happening in that county. In that county. But they did. And the, the white farmers <coughs> did come out to vote. The African-American <coughs> county did come out to vote. And Roosevelt won Howard County and won the city of Kind of an amazing story that happened. And he had one champion in Maryland that I just want to mention, who becomes a part of the story in a way who I think was the best in here, Hugh Macbeth. Probably name you don't know, but Hugh Macbeth uh, was the uh, ran the black newspaper at that time. Later coming through the California. He was a big champion for Roosevelt. Anyway, I, then another thing kind of interesting me well, how do you finance this champion? So I, I don't know what I thought. Is it this idealistic guy here, in my imagining? I think he was probably, I don't know, I probably thought he raised money through the internet. But of course, that wasn't going to work. He always had himself in some ways. But it turns out that his money came mainly from two people. And, and those two people have echoes of things that are interesting to us today. One of them was a man named Frank Muncy, who owned a newspaper called the Baltimore News. Is that known to any of you? At the time, it was the most important newspaper in the state. Is there still a Baltimore News? Do you know, have you heard of this paper? At that time, it was most important by Frank Muncy, who was one of Roosevelt's two biggest backers. And the other big backer was named George Perkins. George Perkins had been a, a major figure, J.P. Morgan, who put together a lot of important mergers. These two men were furious with They liked Roosevelt to be furious with Why? Because I mentioned before that we all imagined TR as trustworthy. But in fact, TR had decided not to break up from trust. One was International Harvester, which was a big story in the campaign, which had, by the way, been a merger created by J.P. Morgan, created by this man, George Perkins. But they also decided not to break up U.S. Steel. TR decided not to have an antitrust case against U.S. Steel. 
And Chad said, we've got some records. So they actually uh, started a antitrust case against U.S. Steel, and they had to explain why Roosevelt hadn't done it. So there's a footnote somewhere in the pleadings where they say, well, Roosevelt didn't really understand all the facts that we now understand. Well, this became a leading period in Roosevelt. But it also, the suit is not a leading to a seal. One of the main defendants in the suit was George Perkins. And the largest shareholder of the was Frank Munson. So these two men are furious at Taft, and they decide largely for that reason that they are going to support Part of this, of this, uh, of this saga. Anyway, once the campaign is over, Roosevelt goes to the and he's won 70% of the delegates in the primaries, but it's not a winning denomination. He needed about 50, about 50 more delegates. And I think I had the idea, the books that I'd read up until now were focused on, that there were credentials challenges in each. Maybe rightly so, in some cases, he would say the delegates had been picked through kind of shenanigans on the Taft side. By the way, there were plenty of shenanigans on the Roosevelt side, too. All of it was a very complicated period. But he hoped to win those credentials challenges, but he knew that he couldn't. Why? They, they fought them. Popular because they wanted the public to think. If they would walk out of the convention, they had a reason to do it because the election was stolen. But, but the, to win the, those delegates, they would have had to have the people who were on a what's called the temporary role, who had already been named, voting to unseat each other. And since Roosevelt, since TR, since Taft had about 50 more delegates on the floor than Roosevelt, they weren't going to vote to unseat themselves. But he had one other way of winning. There were 68 African-American delegates in the Deep South. And although these people were expected to vote for Taft, they were not legally required to vote in the primaries. And so Roosevelt ran this amazing campaign to try to get those men um, to change their position inside. Fascinating campaign. In the end, though, that campaign did not, did not succeed. Only eight of those people changed sides. So when Roosevelt walked out of the convention and started his own progressive party, and this is something I think is sort of a popular imagination, when he walks out of Chicago, he walks out of the convention hall to Orchestra Hall, where there's this huge convention that's been set up for him, and he says, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord, and this new progressive party of his that he's going to create is going to stand for all the wonderful causes of the age. And that's kind of still how we picture the Progressive Party in some ways. Um, he says, I'm going to come back here in six weeks. And if and you go home, to your, meantime, you go back to your states. And in your own states, you pick the people who come to the Progressive Party convention. And if those people decide that they want me as the nominee, I'll be your nominee. But go back to your own states and decide. Well, Associated Press announces that the Mississippi delegates and already picked the person who's going to be the national committeeman in charge of leading the effort to Sydney. was a Harvard-trained doctor named Sidney Redmond. So Sidney Redmond, and I, my focus then shifts to Mississippi partly because in another part of my life, I was part of something called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964, which ran a campaign to try to get uh, African-Americans who were part of the convention in 1964. But Sidney Redmond goes back says, we're going to have a half-white, half-black delegation going to, uh, to Chicago. And he, he issues a, 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 a call with the United call. And then he's told, no, you're not going to be charged in the state. In fact, you're not even allowed to participate in the new party. It's said, Roosevelt's agents say, and we know now that Roosevelt himself had this perspective, and his son, we have his son's letters, which we've never used before, say, no blacks in the Deep South were part of the party. No blacks. Even though he had tried to win the nomination a couple weeks earlier with those votes. And uh, in Mississippi, these Sidney Redmond and these other men do not believe it. And they say, or they say, they don't believe it. 
So they run a parallel campaign. So there's an all-white campaign, really whites is called, campaign to elect the delegates to go to Chicago, the progressive party convention. And there is a biracial campaign. Two different delegations go to Chicago, the progressive party convention. And this story that I'm telling you now somehow has never been told before, but neither is the, is the piece that I'm going to describe after. These men go to the convention, and you might say, oh, well, what happened at the convention had to be a, a description of what people's attitudes were like at the time. Not so. The, con- the decision is finally made by the financial committee between these two slates at 2 o'clock in the morning of the day the convention is held, and it's decided in a vote of 17 to 16 by the financial committee with one disputed proxy. And what they decided is that both of the all-white slate refused to see the new Um This so, and by the way, man was a named Matthew Hale, who was one of the uh, Roosevelt delegates who was there, who had been his son's tutor, the tutor of that man, by the way, who had enforced the order there would be no blacks. He said, this is my serious thing we're doing. We might as well admit that everything we've done and that our parents did since the Civil War was wrong. It's that serious thing. So Roosevelt was nominated. In, in, in Roosevelt's mind, he was made a compromise of a certain time. It's the first time they're African Americans from other parts of the United States. But none can do this. This decision is so infuriates people that a lot of people turned away from the Progressive Party campaign. Progressive Party, which itself, as I say, in our popular memory, is devoted to all the important causes of the age. So all the Progressive Party concepts of the age. And people turn away from it, including, for example, W.B. Du Bois, still famous today. W.B. Du Bois says, I can't support this. And he, to his lifelong regret, he supports Woodrow Wilson for president. But other people turn away including, uh, there was a man named Reverdy uh, Ransom, who was a minister from New York, who had been Roosevelt's champion in Chicago, trying to get the black delegates to, um, uh, in, in Chicago to support him at the, at, when he was trying to get the Republican nomination. And this man goes back to Harlem and gives a speech to his congregation, the first day in the church of, of, uh, of Manhattan, and he says to the people there, he says, some of you were born slaves in the South. And people say, that's right. And he says, you know that when there wasn't freedom in the South, there couldn't be freedom in the North. And they said, that's right. Um, at least 100,000 African Americans vote against TR, who otherwise would have been for him, because his superiors voted here. One Maryland piece of the story is that the man who was his champion here with the black paper in, in Baltimore, Hugh McBeth, who had the Baltimore Times, Harvard trained lawyers, another enormously impressive guy, African American. He turns against him. And that newspaper did it before, and that man religion turned against him. A piece of the story that I think is pretty amazing is to see what happened to those men from Mississippi who Roosevelt excluded in part because he said they weren't intelligent enough to belong in. So I became interested in any of these men who their children were. Sidney Redmond's son became one of the most important uh, lawyers in, in Missouri. I come to another Missouri in a minute. Sidney Redmond and a man named Perry Howard were brothers-in-law. Uh, they had a, a nephew. There was there were three sisters who were all the children of Hiram Revels, who was the first African-American senator from the South from Mississippi. Three, had three daughters. One moved to Washington State. Gabby, you may know this name, became... Uh, she married a man named Horace Caton. Horace Caton Jr. goes to Chicago, becomes a famous sociologist, writes a book called Black Metropolis, which is still considered one of the most important pieces of sociology. Nephew of the two of these men. One of these men was named William Attaway. Most of these men were polymaths. They had more than one, they had more than one degree. William Attaway was a lawyer and a surgeon, moves all the way to Chicago. William Attaway's son moves to the Bahamas, becomes a writer, a famous writer, also named Bill Attaway. 
uh, you know, his two children, one child who grew that way, two children, with Edward's daughter, is in a Broadway play, start, opens in a Broadway play, still known today, called You Can't Take It With You, that wins the Pulitzer Prize. Ruth Attaway is a starring role in You Can't Take It With You, the daughter of one of these men. His son moves to the Bahamas and becomes a famous writer whose musical compositions include one that everybody in the room knows, called Banana Boat Song. With a day of, day of, written by the son of one of these men in the street. Most amazing of one of these descendants, there was a man named Samuel Alfred Beale. Samuel Alfred Beale was a poet whose poetry is still collected today, and he was a lawyer, also moved to Chicago during the Great Migration. <coughs> he had, I got to know one of his, his grandchildren, his great grandchildren, who worked for Mary Wright Elliman and he was right now. But that person, her brother, I didn't know until uh, more recently when something remarkable happened. His name is Michael Alfred Milton, Alfred after Samuel Alfred Beale. Michael Alfred Milton, you remember post Ferguson, all the fights that took place at the University of Missouri. You remember they had to change the leadership of the University of Missouri and bring a new president? The president they brought in, the man who was running the University of Missouri, was Michael Alfred Milton, the great grandson of one of these men who TR would not allow to be seated there. So to me, this kind of an amazing story of, you know, I'm saying, but one of you who knows one of uh, Roosevelt's own grandchildren, several of them I know, know some great grandchildren. He's had an amazing family. So do these men. He didn't let them see that dimension. Um, but with all of that, I think that Roosevelt did create presidential primaries, which I think have had, a, in many ways, a wonderful role in America. But today, and maybe we can talk about this in the Q&A, that follows. He was also on the other side, worrying about what direct democracy and presidential primaries do. In a way that showed you just how thoughtful Roosevelt was, as well as maybe how hypocritical, or how opportunistic, or how much of a politician he is. So today, that's a debate we're all being in, which is just how great is this democracy, which a year ago, without going to the country, we're all So, with that, maybe uh, we can have open some questions. Questions? So, why was Du Bois against Wilson? Later, he realized he supported Wilson for president. Then, Wilson became from the standpoint of African Americans the director of president. He segregated uh, jobs and segregated facilities in Washington, D.C. Um, Maybe others here can elaborate on other reasons that people, that people did not like Wilson. But Wilson was a real step backward. He, one of the things that was kind of important in those days was writing at least some patriots for African Americans in the South. Um, he was terrible about all those kinds of issues. And so, you know, of course, he was a Virginia, he was a Southerner too, Wilson was. But, but in some sense, so was T.R. because as I mentioned before, his uncle, T.R.'s mother was a Georgia Belle. His, uh, his two uncles had been Civil War heroes, so he was torn about the issues. But Wilson was, uh, in many ways, considered a real step backward for Protestant affairs. And of course, one thing we all may remember is that he showed uh, Birth of a Nation in the White House, which was kind of a statement. You know, one person had had um, Booker G. Washington in the White House, the other one showed the movie Birth of a Nation, which kind of celebrated the day in the White House. So, uh, Boys, I think he still thought that Roosevelt did his horrible, but he deeply regretted his way. Yeah. The census, the number of people. You know, I, I should have that suggestion. I have something in the book that tells you state by state how many blacks are registered. But in Maryland, it was the largest number as a percentage of the people in the state. Because in Maryland, it's really interesting. There are certain states where the blacks were especially important. Now in Chicago, I was talking about what happened at the convention, because there were 68 delegates who were at the convention. But in terms of the city of Chicago, it was important. But the state, I think Illinois it was less of an issue than in Ohio. Ohio, the African American vote was very important. And um, 
and I have a lot of this stuff about that people people tell me about from Ohio. There were including there was a, a, a black barber, you know, in Cleveland who wrote wonderful letters and was great friends with, with an American historian uh, named Rhodes. Um, yeah, I mean, how many Anyway, he was, he was friends with, with a great American historian. And so he had a whole series of letters that are called, the letters are called The Barber and the Historian. They're changing letters. And uh, in his letters, he talks about knowing what happened at the Republican convention and claims he found that Roosevelt was engaged in some efforts to directly bribe the black guys who were there. I think it's almost unquestionable that bribery took place in Roosevelt's name. I think it's quite possible he didn't know it. But you know, there's so many shades of those things that happen today. Whatever happened in Russia, there may well have been agents of Trump who did it, who involved. We don't know if Trump. But I think it's unquestionable that agents of Tierra may be invoking his name we're involved in trying to find the right to so, uh, other, other questions? Yeah. You wrote your book to uh, give us an um, understanding of the election, how it actually was. Yeah. Except, am I correct? I, I, I wrote the book in part because I wanted to understand how primaries, how political primaries, presidential primaries started. Help us understand those. Yes, and I think, um, and because it, because of my own role, and because of what I found out in writing the book, last year I was quite engaged in writing op-ed page pieces, talking on radio and television, etc., about the primary system. And there are a lot of things that I think can be improved about the primary system. Maybe I should take this up and maybe say I'm still for it. I'm still in favor of presidential primaries, even if I don't like the result that it gave us just now. I like it because I think the alternatives are all worse. The alternatives, there's that phrase of, 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 of Winston Churchill's where he said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And if you were down the track of sort of imagining what the other systems would be, I think they're still, still uh, worse. But I do think that the primary system can be improved. And I'll just give you one or two examples of that. Um, one is this, the rules that I was identified with would not have allowed for superdelegates. I think the superdelegates, they were never going to determine the outcome of the Democratic Party vote. But people thought they would. In other words, I think if, I personally think if Bernie Sanders, if, if Bernie Sanders had won the election, we won most of the votes, the superdelegates would have had to go that way. But still, they affected how people fought over the process. It seemed corrupt for that reason. So I'm, I'm against having superdelegates. I don't like the idea that the first two states that have primaries are both rural, um, uh, almost all white states. I don't like that. Although you can say that, well, Barack Obama winning in Iowa, which is mainly white state, kind of Showed he could win England, so there's an advantage there. But I don't like that. I think it's, and I, I also don't personally like, um, because some people get winnowed out because they don't win in those first states, who maybe would win in a different, with a different demographic. I also don't like caucuses, personally. Caucuses, I think, are inherently undemocratic. Has any of you here ever been at a caucus? You've seen what it's like. First of all, if you believe in a secret ballot, it's the opposite thing from a secret ballot. You're there going with a group publicly in public. So if your employer is there, or your school teacher is there, or your spouse, there's no secret ballot, which I think is fundamental to the person. Also, they take place during a fine period of time. Let's say the way it is in Iowa, between, like, let's say, 6.30 and 9 o'clock night or something. People who are firefighters, police officers, nurses, or have to be home with their kids, can't go. And so I think that they're, I, I don't think, I think they're undemocratic. So I personally don't like primaries. Uh, um, uh, I don't like their coffee either. And there are a number of other ways that I think the system could be, personally, the system could be improved. But I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect system. And if, you're, if your outcome is you want to fix the system so that you wanted one candidate to win, 
you're almost always going to be surprised because you can't really game the system. And the rules shouldn't be made to game the system, they should be made, I think, on the basis of it. What do you think of that? I think it should be based on what you, what you think, what one concludes is the fairest way of enfranchising. I, I dedicated this book to people who were, who were devoted to expanding the franchise in 1912 and people who are doing so today. I think expansion of franchise is in trouble today. But I think that everybody should have a chance to rule, even if you don't like the outcome. I think we have one last question. Uh, I think it's a question. What, what was your, where did superdelegates come from? And the other thing is, like, you know, and I've said many times, you get on that too. Why, why wouldn't you have, instead of spending tens of millions of dollars on primaries, why wouldn't you just have one day where everybody votes and then you would have? So, so two, so two questions. Uh, uh, so, what, what's the origin of superdelegates, and couldn't you have a, one primary voting day? In terms of superdelegates, uh, the Democrats felt that George McGovern uh, lost badly, uh, and and Jimmy Carter, who, even though he became president, his party establishment didn't like him very well, and he lost. Oh, was very close to Reagan in 1980. They decided after the 1980 election system, they would bring in superdelegates to be ballast so that you wouldn't have people going crazy. And by the way, I think if Trump had lost, the Republicans would have adopted superdelegates. The Democrats would probably not. I think the, super, the Democratic reason, though, I think, is partly that there are a certain number of Democrat, Democratic leaders who think, I don't want to have to go through that messy process. You know, I'm a senator, I'm a congressman, I'm a member of the National Committee. I shouldn't have to go through all that. And, uh, and maybe that's true. Maybe they should be able to mention that. But I don't think their vote should be able to be something that goes in a different direction than the people voted in their, in their places. Um, one primary. I think the one, one problem with the national primary is it, it totally favors whoever has the highest name recognition and best ability to raise money. I think there's, an, and also, I believe, I personally believe that, that elections, part of the purpose of elections, and, and it's gotten less this way, uh, and I think, bizarrely, Trump actually is a little better than Hillary Clinton was this. But I think primaries are a chance to find out what people are thinking. The, the whole primary process will reach out party politics, let's say, in a, a place like Jack Tenney turned over West Virginia back right now. But when you go into place, you have to go to people's um, homes and have small conversations. I think you learn a lot. I say Trump did it only because Trump gave large rallies. But whatever you think of him, he was getting, he was testing out lines and finding out what people in Erie, Pennsylvania thought it was wrong. This place always put in winter. So he was still getting some kind of a feedback in that way. But, but the suggestion that's been made by the Association of Secretaries of State is that there should be regional primaries. So you have something like four regional primaries. It's still a question of which ones come first, but that would at least be a little bit of a compromise. But it's, it's certainly right I'm sorry, so... No, I'm saying, well, but when he become our opponent, didn't he have to look over the like, uh, like this resume of what for him to take a go and take a one up, take a rally. They still had to know his personality. Yeah, right. I mean, I think, like before the primary, they said he was going to take a I think people do, in a certain way, see a personality. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not taking a poll in this room, but my guess is most people in this room do not vote for Trump. Very candidly, I did. I don't like him at all. I don't like his policies, and I particularly don't like his temperament, which I find offensive and dangerous. I don't like the way in which he vilified people. I worry about his maybe encouraging some of the worst attitudes that other people have. I worry about the way in which he affected the American rhetoric, which I think is debasing it in certain ways. That's how I feel. But people were seeing that and voting for him. And, you know, you either say, well, it's not that they didn't know. And, he, and in the primaries, he wasn't doing it against locking up Hillary. He was doing it against other Republicans. And, you know, I, I, I hate it, 
but they were hearing, you know, Lion Ted, or, you know, or, or Low Energy Jeff, or, you know, what? Or Little Marco. You know, they were see and they were seeing it. They saw his personality. A lot of people thought personality couldn't stand it. But enough Republicans saw it and liked it inside of him. His own party. He was. Well he's not a Republican. Yeah. Just, I just want to make this clear. You know, he was not a Republican. He's not a Republican. He's now adopted a lot of Republican positions, but but until a few years ago, he had been a Democrat. And most candidates he supported for office were Democrats. Whether he did it because he had a change of heart or was opportunistic, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I hated what he said about Barack Obama, constantly saying that he wasn't a citizen. He had to know better. I think he did. Um, so it was stirring people up in a certain way. Uh, but he was not in any way a conventional Republican. And I still think he isn't. His tax plan, if you look at the tax plan that he, that he just announced today, it's actually, if you were a Democrat announced, it would be kind of appealing. And that would, it would still be 220 for the rich, but he's essentially for cutting taxes and to help with the budget. But the, but the Republican Party has always cared about a balanced budget as a key issue. He's ignoring that. And then he wants infrastructure to be built, which I think would be a good thing, by the way, you're in construction. I think it's a good thing. I think there should be more construction. But that's not when it's cutting into the budget, the Republican Orthodox. So there's Republican Orthodox on a lot of issues, but not but not other stuff. It'll eventually catch up with them. You know what? I, I, I will make no predictions. I, I, I thought so up to now. Of the states votes would count on the on this representation hard. Actually, the Democrats do not allow it at all. So the Democrats don't have it at all. And, and interesting, interesting, and there's been a lot of fights about that. Republicans allow it at a certain state. Democrats don't allow it. Parties have their own rules. It's not a federal law. But what's interesting is if you care if you want to this is Arcania, the Clinton people 
thought that there was going to take off by congressional, I believe they thought, there was going to take off by congressional district in 2008. And there wasn't. And so even though she won California overwhelmingly that year against Obama, she still didn't get the nomination because you can't pick up that much. But the Republicans don't have winner take all. Republic the Democrats don't Republicans have in some areas. There's no way. Now I would like the fact well, I think, you know, I think the question of, uh, of third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties, is that there are a lot of rules that I have to get out of. That one, maybe one, I'll take another one off. I think it's a fair question about other parties. Because the, the states, which are controlled by the parties, make it very hard for any other parties to get on the ballot. But here's another thing. Some states make it impossible for you to change parties to vote for the person you want to. So in New York State, I'm not sure I've exactly what, but it's something like this. You can't change parties to vote for a candidate after October of the year before the election. So people who wanted to change parties to vote for an independent or social service about the Bernie Sanders in New York couldn't do it because of that rule. I don't think that rule is right. I think personally people should be able to change parties up to the day of the election, although I think they have to be in that party. But um, but those kinds of things are designed, I think, in a part to rig the system. But That's right. Anybody can vote for anybody in the actual election. In the final election it's not. But in the primary system it's not so. I'm sorry, we'll keep away from that. Okay, very, very, I'll try to be quick in that. May I go back to 1912? Yes, I love it. There were people considering, I mean, that it should be women and men, and I don't think we were included at that time yet. Should I talk about women? Women, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you raised it. So, first of all, in the Progressive Party, Roosevelt had a lot of women. He was seconded by Jane Addams, who was the first woman to second somebody at a presidential uh, convention, uh, a major convention, this dress party. At the Republican convention, there were two women who were delegates in California, whose story should be told, by the way, very interesting to me, were two women in California. But here's something you may find surprising in this book. I had assumed, because the Progressive Party was championing the rights of women, that TR was for the right of women to vote. He was not. La Follette was. TR was not. And I have a story in the book, an incredible scene, where I think in the New York primary, on the eve of the election, Roosevelt speaks in four different, five different uh, big venues. His last one's a big casino facility with 3,000 people there. And everywhere he's talking about how unfair it is that there are these huge long ballots and so forth. And he also says, he says, I read today, he says the same thing as He said, I read today. That, that Mr. Chaft says that people should have the right, they should be able to vote people. He says, I say we should have the right to vote. Big cheers. Woman stands up more or less like you are. Sheriff puts her hand up. She says, what about women? Shouldn't we have the right to vote? And Roosevelt's not been told that the right to vote. And the place goes crazy. They want to throw out the wall. He goes up the, other, up the edge of the stage. And he says, no. He said, no, I'll talk to this woman, but you just be quiet while I talk to you. He said, and then he says, if women want to vote, they should be able to vote, to be able to vote, but I think a lot of women don't want to vote. She says, so she shoots her hand. She says, remember, he's former president of the United States. She shoots her hand and she says, you just want women to have babies, not to be able to vote. Anyway, uh, that was his position until after the last um, um, the last primary, and it came from women after that. But it's a really interesting story, the story, and to me, the fact that he was against women having the right to vote until he was forward after the nomination, that he was for suppressing the rights of African Americans in the South, to me at least calls into question something about the basic title and premise of this campaign of letting people vote. Let's leave it at that. If you want to ask me questions, we can do it during the break. Thanks so much. Thank you.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.